If you look in your bulletin this morning, there's a couple of pages of notes. The one that's a full page folded in half, you can just set that aside for now. The other short sheet that looks familiar is an outline if you'd like to follow along. Take a Bible or open your Bible up and find Exodus chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're not going to read all of those verses, but we are going to try to cover what what they talk about, and we're going to read from parts of them this morning. We're talking about the ten plagues of Egypt, and I learned something this week. I learned that uh, instead of plague, if you would have just asked me, what does the Bible call these things, I think I would have just said the ten plagues, but the Bible doesn't actually call them plagues. The Bible calls these ten signs and wonders, and plague is an English word that comes from the Latin word plaga, which means strike or blow. When I say strike, I'm not talking about something you do when you're bowling or playing baseball. And I'm not talking about something you do when you don't want to work anymore and you want to get more pay. I'm talking about like a punch. Okay, Think MMA, mixed martial arts. A a striker is somebody who punches a lot. You could think of the United States military, if that helped you to, to think about the idea a little bit better. Like a military strike when you hit somebody. And in my brain, the word plague is, for whatever reason, just a lot softer than that. But what we're reading about is God punching Pharaoh. Like, it's God attacking the nation of Egypt. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the ten plagues. I, I want to point out to you, this is on the, on the outline as well. We often read these verses as if the plagues just happened one right after the other. Maybe you don't, but at least growing up, I know that's how I read them, like, He went, and the first one happened, then he went back the next day, and the next one happened, then he went back the next day, and the next one happened, and it's just bang, 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 right after the other. But there are a few clues in the text that tell us more than likely these plagues happened, these strikes or these punches happened over a period of several months. Right out of the gate, we know that the first plague lasted at least a week before Moses went back. And there's several other indications, especially when you talk about cattle and crops and some of the things going on in the later plagues, that really make us think this is something that was spread out over several weeks at least, if not several months. I do want to acknowledge this, Bible-believing scholars. You notice I didn't just say scholars. I said Bible-believing scholars disagree about how God brought these plagues against Egypt. People who take the Bible seriously. I'm not talking about Looney Tunes guys who try to explain everything away and they don't believe what the Bible says. I'm talking about people who are serious about the text, who want to take it seriously and understand it properly. There's disagreement about how God actually brought these plagues on Egypt. And the disagreement centers on the issue of, did God directly take action to bring each and every one of these plagues against Egypt? Was God the direct cause of all of them, or did he somehow use secondary causes? And I'll give you just one example so you can kind of see the difference of what I'm talking about. When you read about the plague of darkness way at the end, it seems like when you listen to the text, it seems like God did that directly. There's no explanation given for really how it happened. Some scholars say, oh, well, there was a, a sandstorm, a big giant you know, dust cloud rolled in, made it dark. But the text doesn't say any of that. It just says there was darkness in the land for three days, and it was darkness that could be felt. And it sounds like, if you allow for the supernatural, that God just did this directly. 
You compare that or you contrast that with the plague of locusts. And on the plague of locusts, it wasn't like they were sitting around, you know, chatting it up, enjoying life, and then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, locusts appear. But the text says there was a wind, a heavy wind that blew. And wherever these locusts started up, they came in on the wind. And then when God was done with the plague, the locusts didn't just disappear, but the wind blew, and the wind blew them out towards the sea. And in that instance, we would say, well, it looks like, it sounds like God used a secondary cause. And so there's a little bit of debate here, and we can be gracious in that when we talk about the plagues. How did each one of them come about? Were they related to each other? Did one cause the next one, possibly cause the next one? Or did God intervene directly? Here's the one thing you can't do. You can't walk away from this passage and be serious and faithful to the text and say, well, this was a big coincidence. Like, this would make a great National Geographic special because there was some crazy things happening in nature and they just so happened to line up with exactly what Moses said was going to happen. You can't take the supernatural out of it completely and you've got to allow room for the miraculous. Now, the big idea, this should sound familiar to you because we talked about it last week. The Lord wants all people to know that he alone is God. We're really looking at the same passage. We just picked a spot to divide it, and so the big idea is really exactly the same. God's desire, and what we're talking about this morning with the plagues, is that all people would know the truth about him. And so we're not going to read all of these chapters, but I do want you to see multiple examples through these plagues of God saying, I want people to know who I am. And it's not just the Israelites, it's a wide range of people. And so take your Bible and flip back and let's start in Exodus 8. Let's read verse 9 and 10. This is about the plague of frogs. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you. And for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. So Moses is letting Pharaoh pick. When do you want the frogs to go away? You pick. You decide. And he said, I don't understand why he said this, but he said, tomorrow. I don't know why he said right now or five minutes ago, but he said tomorrow. He said tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, like Yahweh, our God. He's going to do it the way you've said, and the reason he's going to do it that way is because we want you to know that no one else is like the Lord. Look at another example, down just a few verses, chapter 8, verse 19. This is the plague of gnats and... The magicians have tried to do it, verse 18, but they can't. They can't reproduce the gnats. And verse 19 says, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. In other words, they knew. Not just Pharaoh knows now, but the magicians know. This is not something that we can produce by sleight of hand or smoke and mirrors or secret arts or demonic power or everything you think that they did it. They can't pull this one off and they say, this is the finger of God. Of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. Now we're talking about the plague of flies. We read that on that day, God says, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? 
so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So now we've spread out from Pharaoh to the magicians, and now we've spread out to all the Israelites and all the Egyptians, and God says, I want, I want you to know. Pharaoh, magicians, uh, Egyptians, and Israelites, I want everyone to know that I'm making a distinction. I want you to know the truth about me. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. The scope gets bigger. It says, for this purpose I have raised you up. This is God talking to Pharaoh, and we'll come back to this passage in just a minute. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, what I'm doing here is not just about Israel, and it's not just about Pharaoh, and it's not just about Egypt. It's about the entire globe. And I want my name and my glory to be known and proclaimed on every single square inch of the planet. He wants people to know. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. This is the last one we'll look at. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell... In the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I'm the Lord. In other words, he's saying it's not just about the whole earth now. It's not just about Pharaoh or the magicians or Israel or Egypt. It's about future generations all over the earth for all time. I'm going to give you a story to tell, and it's going to be a great one. And I want you to tell it over and over and over. And I want you to tell the story to your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and all the way down. Because I want people to know the truth about who I am. Now, we talked about this last week. When you read through these plagues or these signs or these wonders, that happens in two ways. It happens in salvation for God's people. They know God as the Savior. It also happens in judgment for his enemies. Even in judgment, God wants these people to know the truth about him. And we talked about that's not just a grouchy Old Testament idea. That's very much a Jesus New Testament idea. When Philippians 2 says, In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All are going to know and all are going to confess and all are going to bow. For some, that will be an expression of worship in salvation. For others, it will be with grinding, clenched teeth, and angry hearts, even as they experience judgment. But the bottom line in all of it is that God wants people, all people, to know the truth about who he is. So this week I start studying the plagues, and I come across lots of great things I want to say, and I start throwing them all in my sermon, and I've got all this information in there, and I get ready to start cutting it down and turn it in from just a mass of facts and information into something that hopefully makes sense, and I realize it's going to take me two hours to say all this. I can't say it all, and they're not going to sit for two hours. They might make it 30, 40 minutes. They're not going to make it two hours. So what I did is I gave you an extra handout today, and on the handout, I just, even that's abbreviated. So much 
just cut down, but just some interesting information about each one of the plagues, about what happened in each of the plagues, the order of the plagues, who were the Egyptian gods that were affected by each of the plagues. We'll talk about that a little bit here in a minute. Uh, what was God trying to accomplish in the plagues? Uh, what changed between different experiences of Pharaoh saying, yes, you can go, no, you can't, well, I'll let you do this, but I won't let you do that. You can read through some of that stuff, just stuff that I had to cut out, but I think it's good information and thought maybe you want to read it. So you can use that for a paper airplane during church, and you can throw it after church, or you can go home and geek out on that this afternoon and read about the plagues, whatever you want to do. Uh, but I just wanted to put that in your hands. What we're going to talk about is the big picture of the plagues. Because it is repetitive as you go through. And on, on the one hand, this week I thought, man, it would be great to take one Sunday for each individual plague and really dive down deep. But a lot of the themes and a lot of the ideas are repeated. So I know people, and I know you, by the time we got to about week four or five, you'd be nodding your head saying, yes, we've heard it. We know. We've, we've got it. Jump to the end. Let's get to number 10 already. So we're going to look at the plagues all together. And the two things we want to ask ourselves is, what is the purpose? Why did God do it this way? And how does it all apply to our lives? And for the first part, I'm borrowing from a guy named A.W. Pink. He has a great commentary called Gleanings in Exodus. He has like, I think, 9, 10, 11 purposes. And I just took the best ones. I'm not giving you the dumb ones. I'm just giving you the good ones, okay? The really good biblical purposes. Why did God do it? This way, if you want to know the rest, you can buy the book and read it yourself. But here are five reasons that God did it this way. Number one, he is giving a public display of his own power. He is putting his power on display. And it's worth asking the question, if God knew in the end that it was going to take the death of the firstborn, and he did know that, it's unmistakably clear from what you read all the way back in Genesis 15 to what you read at the beginning of Exodus, God knew that these signs were not going to convince Pharaoh. And additionally, God planned, as we've talked about, God planned to harden his heart anyways. He knew that none of them were going to accomplish the job. You almost step back and say, well, why do it all in the first place? Like, just being a pragmatist, why not just cut to it, kill the firstborn, and get the people out of there? And one of the reasons is he wants to put his power on display. Go back to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus 9. Look at verse 13. This is right before the plague of hail. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Look at verse 15. By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God's saying, like, I could have ended it by now. It's not like I'm trying my hardest here. At any point in this, I could have just stuck out my hand and we could have been done, over. You would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I raised you up. 
I've propped you up, Pharaoh. You are not holding yourself up. I am propping you up. And here's the reason that I've propped you up, so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. And it all begins with this idea of God saying, I am going to show my power to the entire world. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor who lived quite a few years ago. This is what he says about God's power. When it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means. He can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the armory of God, there are weapons of every kind from the stars in their courses down to caterpillars in their hosts. I remember as a young child playfully talking with my dad and talking about how I was going to beat my dad up and I'm going to take it and I'm going to punch you. And my dad used to always say the same thing to me. You better bring an army. You better bring an army. I can hear him saying it right now. I think if I went home and punched him on the shoulder, he'd probably roll his eyes and say, you better bring an army. God doesn't need an army. You understand that when you read this passage. It's not like he rallies the most powerful nation on earth and sends them to destroy the Egyptians. He uses frogs and gnats. Some translations use the word lice. If you're looking in the King James, I think King James says lice and flies and ice from the sky. And he doesn't need an army. And in these plagues, in these signs, in these wonders... God is putting his power on display for all to see. And what God is saying is, I don't need an army to fight my battles. I can fight my own battles. What am I going to use? I'll use flies. And I'll humble the most powerful nation on earth with flies. So he puts his power on display. Number two is delivering punishment for Israel's slavery. It's a reckoning of sorts. Israel had been enslaved for many, many years, and God is bringing justice on the people who enslaved them. And the most remarkable thing about all of it is that God promised to do it hundreds of years earlier. Look at Genesis 15. This is God talking to a man named Abram. This is before Egypt and all the sojourn and all the slavery and all the plagues and all of it. None of it was was even on the radar, and God says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. God says right from the beginning, way before the beginning, I'm going to send them there, they're going to be slaves, and then I'm going to bring judgment on the people who enslaved them. And you and I, I, maybe your brain doesn't work this way, but here's how my brain works. Wait a minute, wait a minute. If you sent them there to be slaves, how can you then punish them for enslaving the people? If that's part of your plan, how are they responsible for it? And you see both of these things. We're going to come to it here in a few minutes. We'll talk about it directly. God is in complete control of all of this, and human beings are responsible for everything they do. And one of the reasons God sends these plagues or these strikes or these blows is to bring judgment on Egypt for Israel's slavery. Number three, executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of the whole story. You read this in Exodus 12, 12. I'll put it on the screen because it's actually a few verses after our passage. 
God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. It's just a fascinating little detail. And it's not just here. You find it also in the book of Numbers. God says the same thing. He's looking back on it and he's saying, I brought judgment and punishment on these gods and goddesses of Egypt who claimed to be over so many things. And some of them I've listed on the the full page outline I gave you. God brought judgment on the river gods, the fertility gods, the cattle gods, the harvest gods, the healing gods. The last uh, plague that we're talking about this morning, the darkness, he brings judgment on the sun god, the high god of Egypt. And he humbles each and every one of these gods every single step along the way. And at the end he says, I beat their gods. Like it's a contest of deity. And when you think about a contest of deity, maybe your brain goes to Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And they just sort of square off and they say, look, we're both going to call for fire. Whoever gets fire, that's the true God. Well, this is like the exact same thing, except God doesn't even give them a chance to respond, really. He just sends plague after plague after plague after plague, humbling all of these deities that claim to control the Nile and control fertility, and control cattle, and control uh, the insects, and to control all of these things. And God just knocks them down one at a time. And he comes to the end and he says, I have brought judgment on the entire Egyptian pantheon. It wasn't just Yahweh versus Baal. It was the Lord versus all the gods of Egypt, and it wasn't even a contest. Purpose number four, offering a warning to all other nations. We talked about this a little bit, a warning to all other other nations. If you fast forward to Joshua 2, you can look the verse up later. Joshua 2, Moses is dead. Joshua's in charge. He sends some spies into the city of Jericho to check things out. And the spies meet a woman named Rahab. And one of the things Rahab says to the spies is, you ready for this? This is 40 years later. 40 years have passed. We're on an entirely different continent And Rahab says, we know all the things that God did in Egypt. We've heard about it. We're trembling in our boots. We're quaking in our boots. Our knees are knocking together because we're so terrified of what the Lord did in Egypt. Sometimes we read that story of Joshua and the armies coming to fight and we say, man, why did they just, all those innocent people who didn't even know what was going on, they knew exactly what was going on. And they had 40 years of warning to get their act together and to get rid of their false gods and to say, we need to line up with the one true God who can do that stuff in Egypt. And Rahab says, we've heard all about it. We know everything that he did. We have been warned. And God is warning all the nations. Look, look uh, if you want a few other examples of this, look at Joshua 9. There's a group of people called the Gibeonites And they realize if we don't do something, they're going to kill us. We can't stop the Lord. They're going to wipe us out. So they come up with this plan. They dress up in raggedy old clothes. They bring moldy bread with them. And they sort of pull this hoodwink trick over on Joshua and the people. But they do it because they say, we know what the Lord did in Egypt. Like we're tricking you into a peace treaty because we know that we can't stand before the Lord. Fast forward, if you want another example, 1 Samuel 6. Do you remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant? 
and they keep passing it around from one town to the next, and everywhere it, go, everywhere it goes, people get cancer, and everywhere it goes, the gods are falling down, and terrible things are happening, and they're, finally somebody says, you know what? We heard what God did in Egypt. We should probably just get rid of this thing. We know what he did to Pharaoh. That comes out of their mouth. We know what he did in Egypt. We can't stand before the Lord. Get this thing out of here. So God's offering a warning to the nations. One last purpose, providing an epic story for Israel to tell. An epic story. And he says it right there in chapter 10. We read it a few minutes ago, verse 1 and 2. You're going to tell your kids about this, and you're going to tell your grandkids about this, and you're going to tell future generations. You just keep telling the same story over and over about the amazing, powerful, great things that I did for you in Egypt. And this becomes the foundational story for God's people. This is when they actually become a people and a nation, and they move towards their own homeland, and it's this foundational story that God puts in place right here in these plagues. Now, the next question is, what does all of that matter to us? When you look at these plagues and what happened in these plagues, how do we apply it to our lives? Let me give you a few thoughts of application. Number one, miracles are possible, but they're not all from God, and they don't automatically create faith. If you're going to take the Bible seriously, you have to have a category that allows for the supernatural. You have to. But you just need to understand that not all miracles come from God. And whether they do or they don't, miracles don't automatically create faith. I told you last week that I think that there's something really going on here when the Egyptian magicians do the first couple of signs. They're able to turn their staffs into serpents like Moses and Aaron do. They're able to recreate water becoming blood. And there's not as many details there as we'd like to have about what exactly happened and how it happened. But somehow they were able to recreate that. They were even able to recreate, this is comical, the frogs. Somehow the text says they produced frogs, which is funny because that just made it worse. There was already frogs everywhere, and they just make more frogs, but somehow they do it. Not all miracles come from God, and that's not just in the book of Exodus, like an Old Testament, old-timey thing. That's in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we read about people who are empowered by demonic forces. Read it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, there was a slave girl who could tell the future. Why? She was filled with a demon. And she had the ability to do these miraculous things, to say these things about the future. The book of Acts doesn't say, you know, this is kind of embarrassing. I don't really know how to explain this to you because we know this stuff isn't possible and can't happen. The book of Acts just says, look, she was, a, she was inhabited by a demon and she could tell the future. Her owners made money off of it. If she couldn't do it, they wouldn't make very much money. Like, it really happened. The book of Revelation describes at the end the false prophet and the beast being able to do miraculous signs that will deceive many. And I think you see the same thing here. Not all miracles come from God. And even the ones that come from God, they don't automatically produce faith in people. Pharaoh is seeing the most amazing miracles. Pharaoh is looking at the miracles that you and I wish we could have seen. And he's watching it all play out. And his heart is as hard 
as a rock. You and I have to be careful about preachers, books, movies, ministries that say if you could only experience a miracle, then you could have real faith. It's not true. Miracles do not create faith in anyone. What you need is not to see a miracle. You need the Spirit of God to do the miracle of regeneration in your heart, to take out your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh that you believe the truth of the gospel. You don't need to see a plague. Pharaoh saw them, all ten of them, and his heart was hard as a rock. Be very careful about anyone or any book or any movie that sort of presents the idea to you that the key to being a really solid Christian is you experience some kind of miracle. I'm not denying that miracles happen. Miracles are possible, but they're not the key to you being a person of faith or you being a person of obedience. So be careful. Second application. Mentioned this earlier. God is absolutely sovereign and human beings are responsible. Both of those things are true, and you just have to live with the uneasiness of it. You have to live with the tension of it. And if you go too far in either direction to deny one or the other, then you go off into heresy, into false teaching. The Bible says both of these things are true. God is in complete and total control of everything that happens, and human beings are responsible at the same time for everything that they do. Just thinking about this idea of sovereignty. One of my favorite theologians passed away this week. His name's R.C. Sproul. And uh, maybe you've heard him on the radio. Maybe you've uh, heard him on the internet. I used to listen to him when I was in high school. I was a church custodian in Amarillo. And they assigned me for a couple years the job of repainting the church. And so I repainted the whole church, every room, one room at a time. And I would listen to preaching tapes. Uh, We had cassette tapes back then in the church library, and I would pop those tapes in and listen to him. This is what Sproul says about God's sovereignty. This is from a book that our staff read a couple of weeks back. He says, I remember my distress when I heard that Bill Vukovic, the greatest car driver of his era, was killed in a crash uh, in the Indianapolis 500. The cause was later isolated in the failure of a cotter pin that cost 10 cents. Bill Vukovic had amazing control of race cars. He was a magnificent driver. However, he was not sovereign. A part worth only a dime cost him his life. God doesn't have to worry about 10-cent cotter pins wrecking his plans. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign. God is God. He's in control. There's nothing that's going to take him by surprise. There's nothing that's going to catch him off guard. There's nothing that's going to be too big for him to handle. He is completely sovereign. You see it in this passage as he sends frogs and gnats and flies and he turns water into blood and he controls the weather and he controls even the sun. He's in control of all of it. He's completely sovereign over everything, including hearts. Look what the text says In Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. This is before the first plague. We talked about this last week in verse 13. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Jump back up to verse 13. You read the same thing. Pharaoh's heart was 
hardened. The tense of that Hebrew verb is not telling you, look, this is an ongoing hardening process. The tense of the verb and the perfect tense is saying it's hardened and it's done. Like it's a completed action. It already is hardened. That's how the whole story of the plagues begins, with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Now jump to the end and look at Exodus 10, verse 27. This is how it ends. It's not insignificant that Moses frames the whole story this way. Exodus 10, 27 says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh would not let them go. God's in control of the flies and the weather and the sun and the gnats, and the water, and all of it. And he's even in control of Pharaoh's heart. At which point, our puny, finite brains kick into gear, and we say, if God hardened his heart, how in the world could Pharaoh be held responsible? And the answer is, because God chooses to hold him responsible for his actions. That's the way it works. And you got to live with that tension. God's in control of all of it, and Pharaoh is responsible for hardening his heart. As you read through these plagues... Every single plague will include one of two details. Towards the beginning, once you get into the plagues, you'll read, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then as you get further, you read, God hardened his heart. And as bookends on either side of it, you read, his heart was hardened. The takeaway is that God is in complete control and Pharaoh is completely responsible. In your life, I hope that you don't live with the illusion that God is not in control of your life. I hope you don't struggle with fear that God is not in control of the things that happen to you. He is not worried about 10-cent cotter pins or maverick molecules. He's sovereign over all of it. There is nothing that has ever or will ever happen to you that is outside of his control. At the same time, you are responsible. You're responsible for your sin. You're responsible for faith. You're responsible for trust. You're responsible for obedience. You are responsible. And we hold both of those things in tension. Another point of application. Exodus is a preview of the final judgment as described in Revelation. I've been working on a Bible reading plan, and I came to the end of it this last week, sort of a read-through-the-Bible deal, and um, it's a deal where you read the New Testament a couple of times, and you read Psalms and Proverbs a couple of times, and you read uh, the Old Testament once, and I turned a one-year Bible reading plan into two years, so I finished it over two years, so you're not alone in that struggle if that's something that you struggle with, and I made it through to the end, and I'm reading through the book of Revelation just this last week. And I'm studying for the plagues. And I'm comparing what the book of Revelation is describing. And we can debate about timelines if you want to debate about timelines. But I'm reading this description and I'm reading the plagues. And I'm saying to myself, you know, they both talk about darkness. And they both talk about hail. And water turning to blood. And locusts and insects. And boils and death. And they both talk about frogs. There's demon frogs in the book of Revelation. I don't know if you've read that or not, but they're there. Like one after another, each of the plagues that you read about in the Exodus keeps showing up at the end. I don't think that's a coincidence. 
I think that's John's way. Remember John the Apostle, he sees this vision of the end. He's grasping for words. How can I put into words, into writing what I have seen? And he's drawing from something that's very familiar. And he's talking about these plagues. And what he's saying to you, if you think that was bad, just wait. Like if you can read about the plagues and sort of get a chill up your spine, just wait. Because that was the judgment and the wrath of God on a nation. But in the end, it's going to be far greater than that and far worse than that. It's a preview of what's coming in the end. And you can read about that in the book of Revelation. Number four, God's people ought to be in awe of God's power. In awe of his power. Please, 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 today, take 15 minutes and read these chapters. 15 minutes. For one, you ought to do it to see if what I said is true, right? You ought to go back and fact check everything and read it and say, is that right? Did it line up? Is that true? How did it play out? Read it for yourself. For a second thing, if you can sit down and you can read these chapters and your heart isn't moved at all, you don't feel a little bit smaller you're not humbled at all, then I'm afraid you're more like Pharaoh than you may want to admit. Pharaoh saw all of it, and he wasn't moved. I think the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, when you read this story, you walk away just saying, that's amazing. That's amazing that God has the power to do the things that he did in this story. We ought to feel awe. The last idea is this. Creatures should not try to bargain with the creator. I just want to mention some of the ways that Pharaoh tried to bargain. I'll give you the references and you can look them up this afternoon. Exodus 8, 8, he actually asks Moses to pray for him. Would you go pray for me? Intercede on my behalf. He asked Moses to pray for him. Exodus 8, 28, he offers a negotiated obedience. In other words, Moses sort of throws out, this is what we want, and Pharaoh gives him a counteroffer. Like, it's not just no, it's, well, would you take this? You want to go three days out into the wilderness, well, what if just some of you went? Well, what if you didn't go three days? Well, what if you offered those sacrifices here in the land of Egypt? Like he offers on multiple occasions, and 828 is an example, negotiated obedience. This is what the Lord says, and Pharaoh sort of has a counteroffer to God. Exodus 9, 7, he sends people to investigate. Like when he hears that the Lord is making a distinction between Egypt and Israel, he sends his guys to check it out. Like, hey, if this is true, if there really are no flies in the land of Goshen, I want to know about it. And he sends his guys, and they come back, and they say it's true. Exodus 9.27, shocking verse. Exodus 9.27, Pharaoh says, I have sinned, I'm in the wrong, and God's in the right. But at the end of all of it, where Pharaoh lands, is that he wants to sort of reach a deal on his terms. He's trying to negotiate the terms of obedience. 
You know, it's funny, Jesus experienced the same thing when he walked on the earth. He called people to discipleship, and there were people who said, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, follow you, but first, I need to do this. And Jesus refused to negotiate. You remember that? He didn't say, Well, you raise a good point. I'm being probably a little too demanding in what I'm asking, so yes. You do that. We'll meet in the middle. He just let those people walk away. I read a commentary by a guy named Phil Riken this week, and this is what he said about this issue. God does not discuss terms. He dictates them. Some of you in this room have gone to church all your life, and you are playing a deadly game of trying to bargain and negotiate with God about your life about your obedience. You're trying to find some kind of middle ground about discipleship. Like you know the part that says deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow Jesus, but you're sort of hoping there's an option B, not quite as stringent. Some of you are playing the game of the people who said to Jesus, Lord, we will follow you after this. It's a deadly game. God does not discuss terms. There will be no negotiations. And the only play available to you is submission. To humble yourself and to submit to God as God. And not to dictate terms to Him, but simply to accept His terms. These are the terms. The God that we read about in Scripture is a holy God. You and I are sinful people. And our sin separates us from God. So that he doesn't see and he doesn't hear. Our sin places us under God's wrath and his anger and his judgment. And the only play available to you is to trust in who Jesus is and what he accomplished on your behalf. To turn from your sin, admit it as sin, confess it as sin, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And to say, my only hope is that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in my place that I might live and that I might be forgiven. And on the heels of that, to follow Jesus. Not to say, I'm going to pray a prayer like Pharaoh and raise my hand and say, I sinned, God's in the right, I'm in the wrong, and nothing changes. But to say it and mean it and to live it out as a follower of Jesus Christ. God does not discuss terms. He dictates them. Jesus said, repent And believe, for the kingdom of God has come. Those are the terms. I want to ask you to bow, and I want to pray for you. Father, we look at your word. We look at this ancient story. We're reminded that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are a great God. You have a heart that people would know the truth about you. Father, and we know that in the end, all people will know the truth. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for the people in this room. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that we would not foolishly and arrogantly try to negotiate terms with you. That we would not try to dictate the terms of our own discipleship, but that we would be people who submit who confess, 
who believe and who follow. Father, we want to take a moment to sing about what you have done to make peace between rebellious people like us and yourself. To sing about the cross and to sing about the life and the hope that we have in Jesus. So Father, as we sing, be honored and be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.